Ross. I'm here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. Today's book is The Cherry Orchard by Anton Chekhov from 1904. It's a story of a Russian landowner who can't bear to sell her family's cherry orchard and also can't afford to keep it, and the former serf whose family worked on the land for generations and who is in a position to buy it. Sandy and I will have a conversation about the play, but we also wanted to include a um, a coda at the end from our friend Isaac Butler because he knew some really interesting things about the original inspiration for the play and the first controversies over its meaning. Um, that's going at the end of this episode. First, my conversation with Sandy. Hey, uh, so what are your big picture thoughts about this? Just before we dive in to, I'm sure, any number of smaller picture thoughts. Okay, so so one of the things that I really thought that reading Chekhov in general, and we'll get to the two short stories we're going to talk about in next week's episode, but um, watching The Cherry Orchard, I realized that I now think that all stories are either haunted house stories or monster movies because The Cherry Orchard just kept reminding me of Haunting of Hill House, and then that began to make me think of other things that we've, like Flowers in the Attic is obviously a haunted house story. But then I've always had this thing about so many books and movies being essentially monster movies in their form. Um, Like The Great Gatsby is obviously a monster movie because first we keep hearing about The Gatsby, but only get brief glimpses. Then we start meeting The Gatsby up close and each time we learn some scary new feature, and then the Gatsby begins to claim victims, and at last it's killed in a surprising way. And that's like a very, yeah. very common form. And this is like the haunted house story where the the curse on the house has to be exercised. And it's just that way through through the entire thing. Like it's actually specified by Trofimov that there has to be this kind of retribution. It has to be worked out through suffering. And then it is, and the and the ghost is purged, and everybody is happier. So who is who is haunting the house? The serfs. It's the like pain. The, of the yeah, it's the pain of the serfs. So, or at least that's what we're told. We're told it's the the pain of the serfs, and that ghost is exercised by Lepachen, the the son of a serf, buying the house out from under the aristocracy. Um, do you? Does that include um, Fierce, the the servant who dies at the end? Fierce is the embodiment of serfdom. Um, he so dies with the house. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's. So he will not haunt the house. His suffering. It, it's the end of his suffering at the end of his life. Yes. Although I would say, like the, we're talking about different versions. It's, I, I watch two versions and you watch two versions and we, we both watched yes. the Judy Dent version and then each watched another version that were different. So yes, yes. In, in the Russian version, which I watched for fierce, we know fierce is dying, but he doesn't like explicitly die at the end of the play. He just lies down to sleep locked in this room from which he can't escape. Um, okay. Which I think is kind of a stronger ending. It's not, it leaves the audience more on the hook and it's even more painful. Um, yeah. I, I don't know where I draw the line on more painful. I, I found the mm-hmm. ending to be just staggeringly painful, uh, but also 
um, I couldn't believe how much fun it was. The, the play in general, like that I wanted to watch multiple versions that each of the versions played. So I watched a one that's streaming at the national theater right now. So mm-hmm. an English version and the J- Judy Dench version that I found on YouTube from uh, 1982. And um, they, they played many of the characters uh, quite differently and I couldn't believe how much interpretive heft there was for the actors to do mm-hmm. um, that was supported by the text and was rewarded by the text. Like um, it, one that really struck me is in the 1982 version, the character Anya, who is the 17 year old daughter of the family that cannot afford to keep the house anymore. She can't quite pay attention to anything. Um, mm-hmm. And she's, she's tired from her long train journey. Um, and when people are trying to get her attention, she kind of is like slipping away in this sort of dreamy way. And then in the version that, um, I guess it's a contemporary version. It's the same character. She's saying the same words, but she has a, a lot of youthful um, energy and vigor in her motions she's too impatient and too kind of full of, of motion and vigor to pay attention to what anyone is saying. I thought each of those was totally supported by the text. Okay. The Russian version, um, which is from the same era as the Judy Dench version that I watched, which I watched the 1980s version. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's okay, good. So this is the same era. It's just before perestroika. Um, so that was really interesting watching a Soviet era production of the cherry orchard, because it's such, such a Bolshevik play. It's ridiculous. Um, and you certainly see that one produced by Russians. So the, the Anya character actually was not that interesting. She was played as a straight up ingenue. Um, yeah. And what was really interesting was the difference in how the Lopakhin character was presented because in the Soviet version, he was just the hero. He was sexy. He was charismatic. There was none of the, like in the Judy Dench version, he's basically played as a cross between that and Fagin. He's very Jewish, actually. There's like the mannerisms are very much like a stage Jew. And in the Soviet version, he's absolutely the hero. And all the Russian comments on the, on the YouTube were like that, you know, like Lopakhin, he's the only only sane man in a crazy society, all of this. Um, so people in Russia still perceive it that way. They perceive him as just the straight up hero, the moral center of the play, and everybody around him is a decaying aristocracy. And the play ends with the triumph of goodness. Um, so I have, I have like a longer thing to say and uh, I hope that it'll, I hope that it'll make sense um, the way I'm going to say it because um, I I ended up writing a long email about it to try to um, organize my thoughts to make sure that I'd have something pretty succinct to say that would work in a Mm -hmm. podcast, but it's a continuation of what we were talking about in our um, 10 book retrospective episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, Cause I, I was editing those episodes and I was watching different versions of this play and reading it and then reading various commentary about it. And I was thinking it's kind of setting up the mechanics 
of everything we were talking about that recurs through 20th century literature and that particular difference between 20th century suffering and everybody else's, like, let's say 19th century suffering, um, where in this, this play, you really see the handoff of the baton of the mechanics of 19th century suffering to 20th century suffering. Um, where if you think about 19th century suffering as people being overly defined by their social roles and having absolutely no chance of changing those roles, um, they will be born into one position in society and likely die in the same one, but they are so interdependent on other people also staying completely fixed that there's, um, there's both inter interdependence and responsibility for one another and just complete hopelessness. If you want anything other than um, to be brutally put down, if you want to change your fate um, in even very small ways. Um, I'm not and, sure if I agree with that. I've got to say, well, I, I'm interested in you disagreeing, but I want to say the yeah, rest of my thing okay. just really yeah, fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted so, to make that a bookmark there. So, be gone. Uh, um, I I think that the way that um, that some of the characters, um, particularly the richer characters, experience that like more feudal landowner aristocrat, and then the people that kind of uh, live and work under them, um, that they can experience that as a pleasant and humanist way to live because there's um, they can have a cherry orchard that grows over multiple generations and um, they can come back to places they knew when they were young and stuff like that. And they haven't changed much, uh, which they talk about a lot is how the cherry orchard looks exactly the same as it always did. And then Lubakin is the only clear eyed person in the play who knows that what must be done is that you have to use your resources according to what the market will pay for. Um, which means you have to cut down the cherry orchard and sell off the land for uh, vacation cottages uh, because of the railway, because that's, that's what's, what's happening in the 20th century is that the, um, the use of land is changing and the, the use of, any resource is changing such that you really have to do what the market demands. And this is basically a recipe for anyone to think there used to be a stable and normal way of living where you could be a person among people um, who knew you, who understand you, even if that understanding is itself suffocating and bad, but your memories will in a sense still be happening because of that stability the transition to everyone having to do to use any of their resources exactly the way that the market will pay for at that moment, knowing that at some point those vacation cottages are also going to, you know, the market will want something else and they'll be torn down. Something else is going to go in there. Um, If you think about the location of normal life um, for the characters who are losing the cherry orchard, the location of normal life is in the past. And for uh, Lopahin, the, um, the location of normal life is um, potentially uh, stifling and uh, denying him any human feeling other than obedience to the market. Like he wants to 
repay the kindness that um, the landowner showed him when he was a child. And she will not be helped because she doesn't want to cut down the trees. And it's also the land that his family worked. You know, it's his family land too, because he, his family has been serfs there all along also. Um, but he also has to be obedient to the dictates of the market, that that's what being clear eyed and reasonable person means is that you have to put the dictates of the market ahead of any other human feeling. And he does okay. not marry. Um, he doesn't have time. Um, it, it feels like a, a handoff to the issues, including, sorry, one last thing, including caregiving. The fact that there's nobody whose job it is to look after the aging servants once uh, the 20th century is really underway. All right. Okay. Hang on. Hang on. You. This is. Sorry. I have to stop you here because you, you are, like you're you strayed into a point where, you're actually saying that, you're blaming the 20th century for the fact that aristocrats, don't take care of their elderly slaves. No, I mean, I'm saying no, no, no. Wait, sorry. I'm truly trying to say that it's. It's one kind of suffering that is handing off to another kind of suffering. and they Okay, are- okay, but no, but what I'm saying is that, okay, I'm just, I have to speak. I must speak. Okay, speak. so first, first, um, I'm just going to work back from backwards. So um, I see it really differently because I'm really, um, I'm, I'm always like really fascinated with how the West kind of doesn't see Russian slavery as slavery, that there's this perception of serfdom as if it was not true slavery. And, and I know you don't do this. So don't, this is just a like, but going back through like how I saw the play, like in terms of that, like certainly fierce would not have been treated any better in the old days and probably worse because there would have been several other people to replace him and he would have not, been in the house anymore um, yeah. and probably would have died much younger with also without care. Um, as far as the, like, I, I mean, Lepakhin's not marrying, I think is kind of something that can be played different ways in different productions, but I really strongly read it as him never having any interest in marrying Varya. That's just the family wanting him to do that in order to get her off their hands so that she's in a comfortable place. And he almost does it just because it's his instinct as the son of a serf to do what the aristocrats want. Interesting. And, I, and him chopping down the cherry orchard, he, like his whole conflict is about his conflict between being himself and his own man and taking the cherry orchard and cutting it down and destroying the past and his instinct as a child who grew up like essentially in the remains of serfdom and wanting the love of the aristocrats and wanting to serve them and wanting to be for them. Like being taught to identify with the abuser, essentially. And he breaks out of that and gets rid of them. And he's still like a, a good and kind person who's, who sees their pain. But it's really like for him, it's a happy ending. And it's not about like, there is really like an absolute negation of the meaning of the cherry orchard. 
like in the reading that I'm offering you, but there's another reading yeah. that's from the point of view of Renevskaya where it's this beautiful thing and it's the past and it's the nostalgia and it's the death of the aesthetic. Yeah, the I agree idea. with you that if the play had ended with Lopahin um, just simply taking her place as the landowner, um, it would have been a much more closed play. That it, um, he's a released, uh, a released slave who does not become another person who owns more land than he can work himself, and thus, in that same, uh, some version of that same relation to other people. Yeah, he's actually going to chop it up and give it over to more people, like. Implicitly, former serfs who will be able to have their own holiday homes, which the people watching it in the Mali Theater in, you know, <laughs> in the 1980s in Russia, they were those people. They had those dachas that he's talking about. So yeah. it's like, it's this, it's that sort of historical. And so they're talking about like what's lost in that is that dream of the aristocracy. But also keep in mind, like she, Ranievskaya, actually left and she hasn't been there in five years. The house has stood empty and yet she wants it to be kept there so that it can stand empty while she goes off to her lover in Paris. Um, yeah, I think that there is a big option for any um, production of this to play everyone except Lopahin as just complete assholes. Yeah. Yeah, that's really true self-indulgent and um, in deep denial about who and what they actually are and what they're remembering fondly when they look at the orchard, that it is in fact slavery. They are the, the um, people in contemporary U.S. holding plantation weddings. Although there's also the figure of Trofimov, the student who who is essentially like an early Bolshevik. Yeah. What was your read on him? I think, I mean, he's a really interesting figure because it's clear, like he's always talking about working, but he doesn't, it's not, you know, we're never told what he actually does, which might've been for censorship reasons, in fact, but he, he seems, he's like a very old figure in Russian literature. Um, like you see, the same figure in Rudin and Turgenev, but portrayed much less sympathetically. And there's also, I think he probably would have had in mind Herzen's What is to be Done, which has this character, Rachmedov, who's, who, like, the, the great thing about that character, What is to be Done, that is similar to Trofimov, is that he rejects love and refuses the great love of his life because he wants to work for the revolution that's all that really matters to him. So he's like a monk for the revolution. So Trofimov is presenting himself as that figure. Um, and I don't think like in both of the productions that I saw, they, they more or less let him get away with it. But I think he's meant to be presented as much less of a reliable narrator of himself. I don't, I don't know. Well, especially because he's supposed to be um, somewhat carrying on with um, with the daughter of the family, um, which suggests yes. like where his 
um, his sympathies really lie. Like there are plenty of, um, you know, there's uh, Dunyasha and Varya and there, there's other women that he could have decided to take up with if, um, if that's where his sympathies lied. L- lay? Sorry. Lay, yeah. And if, and if he was so red hot to work for the revolution, why is he spending the whole summer in the countryside? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that there's a way of playing every character where they are tragic um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, not the asshole um, and a way of playing almost every character where they're fools. Um, Yes. Or, or hypocrites or both. Yeah. And, and I think that this is the thing that prevents it from working as a play where it's just a bunch of jerks being jerks. Um, is that I, I don't know how any of them could behave that would be more reasonable. Like um, it, Varya, let's say. So she's the um, adopted daughter of Ranyevskaya, the landowner. She has been keeping this property, uh, you know, she's in charge of it. Um, she doesn't have any wealth of her own. She doesn't have any job if it gets sold. There's no money to pay her. Like what's her good option? Yeah. I'm not sure she's given a lot of options. There's, there's some of the other characters. I think the only thing that Varya, like a, a few of the other characters, the only real mistake that she makes is again, putting others interests above her own. So she's always focused on taking care of the property, which actually doesn't even belong to them really anymore. So she, why is she bothering? She she should just put her feet up at this point. So she's involved in this kind of chase after nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I guess, so this is actually, this is sort of the, the crux of the difference in our interpretation of it. Um, do you think that in the world of the play, people like Varya would have been cared for and that in the more market driven 20th century, those people are nobody's responsibility. And so they just lie on the floor and fall asleep and or die. Or do you think that the market driven 20th century gives them an opportunity to go just get a different job and be free of their very fixed role that is actually extremely abusive and terrifying. I think that she ends up in the same position that she was in at the, at the beginning, actually she, she goes off and she's essentially, she's a housekeeper in another family, which was what she was treated as in this family. So arguably that this is actually a difference for most people in the 20th century is when she's working for another family, it's not as emotionally painful as it is when you're mistreated by your own family. Like yeah. the, her position, I think it's not like even in the writing, her position as an adopted daughter who's treated as a servant isn't given enough room. Um, but I speak as an adopted daughter. So of course I would say that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but I think like that's, that's like what an adopted daughter means in this, in this particular time frame. She's, she's from the 
the, pe the peasantry, and she's been adopted as a daughter for some reason or other, we're never told. But really, her position is to be like a servant in the house. Um, yeah, to have a better education in order yeah. to serve as a servant. Yeah. And that's like the position of a spinster or a poor relation, which would have, I mean, her life actually isn't much different in the 20th century than it would have been in the 19th century. I mean, I guess that's, that's the haunting of Hill House. Yeah. Eleanor, Eleanor's role. But this is not our retrospective episode. Yeah, it seemed to me that in this play, anybody who was, who should have been responsible for anyone else simply had not considered that they might do their job. Like the, the figure of the governess is really interesting and weird in this, <laughs> from this point so of view. So weird. Yes. But it's almost like, why was she hired as a governess? She seems like I know the last person in the world that you would hire as a governess. But I guess that's the, the point of Renovskaya is that she's hiring just anyone to do anything that, that yeah. she's, not, she's not a careful or responsible person, but she is open hearted in some ways and loving. One thing that I think is interesting in the, the Russian version and the Judy Dench version, like certain characters are played drunk and there are different characters in the different versions. Um. <laughs> oh, wow. Which, which character? Wow, I, that's, that's a good choice. I, I'm curious. It's really interesting. Yeah, 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 you'd think that this would be written to the play, but apparently like you can you can pick and choose. And in in the uh, in the Russian version, the governess is wasted. Like by by act two, she's just completely wasted. She just kind of staggers around really drunk. Um especially like when she's carrying the rifle, she's cleaning the rifle, she's really she's just absolutely off her face drunk. I think it's possible that that's true in the version, the national theater version that I watched. I, I was having some internet problems. So it was, it was um, in act two, it was kind of like jolting around a bit. She was either being played as drunk or played as a very odd person. It does feel, I mean, it, it does feel like a very 20th century thing, especially like it's kind of a, an early 20th first half of the 20th century thing to have it be stylized, like emphasized to such a degree that it isn't even realist anymore. Like there's a, there's, there's stuff in the cherry orchard where so many people are completely ignoring what the person just said to them and speaking past them that it becomes kind of surreal which I think would not have been possible in the same way. Like in the, in the 19th century, you can get some of that in Dickens, but it's, it's much more clearly just kind of a joke. Um, yeah. So I was thinking about this play as um, a continuation of a few of Tolstoy's moves, uh, like the scene at the beginning of War and Peace, where there's a whole group of people and a party. And I remember the dialogue in that being quite like it jolts around quite a lot because mm -hmm. a huge number of people and they're all sort of angling for the attention and um, they need, they need favors from people who are more powerful than them and they need to present themselves in the, to the right degree of pitifulness to get the favors that they need. 
Um, and the right degree of like, if you invest in me, I'll pay off down the road in some other way. And, um, but there's like 20 people who are all working different angles on each other. You know what I mean? Do you know the scene I'm talking about? I know, I know the scene. I, I don't think I remember it as, as clearly as you do, but. Well, I, I remember it specifically because I, um, I've tried to write this kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> and it's really difficult <laughs> But it, it takes a specific kind of intelligence that I think my American brain is not trained for. That I think it, these scenes come up frequently enough in Russian literature that it makes me think of something I read in uh, Robert Massey's biography of Peter the Great, I think, um, about how the, the way that czars would traditionally keep power and, and centralize power was by taking away the land of whoever they uh, had displeased them and giving it to someone else who had pleased them. So um, the landowning families would not necessarily know which piece of land they were going to have generation to generation. So they didn't necessarily, if they got, they got some money, they would not necessarily put it into uh, improving the land or the farms or anything like that. Um, but they would put it into having parties where they would, uh, you know, um, make sure they were in good favor with the other people more or less of their class and above so that they wouldn't have the land taken away in the next round. Um, yeah. And yeah. that that's why in a scene like, you know, well, the whole plot in Anna Karenina about uh, Levin, how he's looking at his farm saying, well, there are all these Western European farming technologies that they use over there, but who knows if they would even work in Russia. And what he's looking at, is a farm where they use wooden plows and they don't do crop rotation because all of those things are the, the kinds of things that they had not been putting money into over the generations up until then, where in Western Europe, that kind of farming tradition was what landowners were supposed to do, which you can see in Middlemarch when they talk about like, oh, the cottages, like do we improve the cottages for the peasants that are working the land? And that's what the landowner, like a responsible landowner, is supposed to improve the cottages, where that was not necessarily true. Well, I think like the by the time, even of Anna Karenina, that kind of taking away the property of of somebody who isn't in favor is already less common. You, you oh, way less common. That. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and obviously, the Tari Orchard is not really. But but uh, but okay, I had something to say about this in general, though. Maybe. The last thing I wanted to say was just that those scenes okay. where there's a huge number of people and everyone's trying to curry favor, that might feel like a very specifically Russian way of interacting. Yeah, I think it's, um, there is because like in the 19th century, this is, this is coming back to like, I was trying to bookmark something that I disagreed with you about, about history. Oh, good. But the, 19th century in fiction in Western Europe is very much the social climbing novel. Like in the, the novel is all social climbing. It's all kind of, you know, the red and the black. Um, and the novels of Dickens, it's about people getting ahead in the world to a large degree in the, the rising middle classes and the crisis of what it means to be an aristocrat when the middle classes are married to the aristocracy and so on. And in Russia, this all happens much later. So the cherry orchard is happening at the moment when that first begins to happen. And it's perceived as a different kind of crisis because it's happening at the same time as revolutionary movements. Um, and you can see Chekhov being actually quite prescient about what this means for everybody and how fragile the entire social system is. 
Absolutely. But that does mean, like what you're saying about the servility, like the servility that's baked into that culture and how people see themselves and have been raised to to gain things for themselves by being servile, um, by pleasing the person who's above them, by everybody gathers like moths to the light of the most powerful person in the room and moves around them. Um, that's really very Russian. Yeah. I yeah. Agree. There's, it's like, you could call it servility, but it's also like a social intelligence um, where yeah. you're, you're supposed to keep your attention on a huge number of people's faces, essentially, and what they're saying and what they're not saying and what everything you know about their backstory uh, and their parents' backstory and, you know, all of these things um, that make these plays difficult to perceive if what you're accustomed to thinking of it is like a responsible person buys property. Yeah, and there, there's also like in the, in the context of the cherry orchard, um, this is something I wanted to get into, the cherry orchard, this is also part of the thing of like knowing, having all of that social intelligence in your head that kind of encyclopedic intelligence of where everyone stands socially is to do with the smallness of the society in the provinces of Russia. There, there, you know, you could, you actually know the names of everyone you will ever see in that town. That, that servant fierce meets a stranger once every five years, you know, that yeah. it's that kind of culture. Um, and so we're we're watching people who are very intimate with each other, regardless of their social station, which is not something that's natural to us, that we would be deeply intimate with people who were of a completely different social station to us. And, and thus, the degree of contempt with which, the habitual contempt with which fierce can be treated is completely different from the way that any normal person in America would treat somebody who was a menial unless they're homeless but even so like you wouldn't go up to a homeless person and say damn you're old you know that would be well, a very weird thing to do <laughs> like oh you wouldn't be telling them like you'd have to be a very specific kind of person to walk up to a homeless person and say well you're ready for the glue factory man I don't know. It's like if, if you put that, if you put that in a play, you're saying something about that character that they're not That's necessarily. That's a really good point. If you put it in a play, yeah, they, these people are people who just known each other all their lives, and so they say rude things to each other. Um, as you pointed out, though, if you ever, because I ha I have not lived in Russia, but you said that they don't they don't need a Reddit. Am I the asshole? In Russia, <laughs> there's always someone willing to tell you that you're the asshole. That is really true. Like people come up to you on the bus and, and tell you what's wrong with what you're wearing. It's really, it's really extreme sometimes. <laughs> or at least it was when I when I lived there. It was it was like that. I mean, I'm, I doubt it's changed that much in a short period of time. Um, I wanted to mention one more thing about about those uh, social changes happening specifically around the railroad that not only did the railroad come to Russia later than it came around uh, Western Europe. So like the difference between Middlemarch and Anna Karenina essentially in time. Um, but also it was not Russians that put it in, in Russia. It was Western Europeans that, that put it there, which I think also is one of the, um, one of the reasons 
that in uh, Anna Karenina, it seems like this hostile foreign force that's coming in that is changing things as opposed to something that's like a natural development of the society. Right. That's very typical of Russia that, I mean, the, the railroad is such a theme in literature throughout 19th and 20th century Russian literature and Dostoevsky, like people are always like seeing it as a sign of the apocalypse. I do have to say that in Russian literature, it can, it can mean one of two things. So, like Russian literature is so kind of bifurcated into like the, the westernizers and the like pro-progress people. And then the Slavophiles who are always like conservative and anti-progress and the, the railroad is the antichrist. Um, and both of them are like way more bonkers than their Western counterparts. So that's one of the fun and exciting things about Western about Russian literature is that you think that oh oh this poem sees the railroad as progress, but the degree to which it sees the ra- railroad as progress is almost immediately completely bonkers. So um, I think that what we are talking about is encountering somebody's social intelligence being greater than ours. So you think the Russians are right? Well, I, I don't know. It's like, but if you actually, if you were to read something with a social intelligence way beyond your own, you'd probably just be like, you have some wacky opinions there about the railroad, man. All right. That's the conversation between me and Sandy. And now we have Isaac Butler telling us a little about the origin and history of the play. Chekhov got the idea for the play while staying with Stanislavski at his country home uh, of Lyubmovka. I'm sure I'm butchering that pronunciation. And like the layout of the house in the stage directions is the layout of Stanislavski's house. The characters of Charlotta and Epikodov, or however you pronounce his name, again, I'm terrible at this, are both based on like real people floating in Stanislavski's orbit. In fact, Epikodov is based on one of Stanislavski's servants. Um, Trofimov is based on a local in that area, et cetera. And, and Chekhov knew um, the Moscow Art Theater Company very, very well. He was their signature star playwright. The production that made their reputation in their first season was a production of his play, The Seagull, which everyone thought uh, was an unstageable, terrible play until they did it. And it's actually the reason why we think of Chekhov as an important playwright is that production. And uh, then they did Uncle Vanya, which is an earlier Chekhov play. And then they did Three Sisters, which Chekhov wrote for them. Uh, and then he wrote The Cherry Orchard for them as well. So he knew the company really well. And he he had very strong ideas about the the casting, most of which the Moscow Art Theater Company strongly disagreed with, with one you know notable exception, which is that he wrote the part of uh, Ranovskaya, Chekhov did, for his wife, Olga Knipper, uh, Olga Knipper Chekova, who he met through the company because she was an actress there. So anyway, um, Chekhov writes the part of Lopakhin for Stanislavski. It's actually kind of a tribute to him because Stanislavski himself came from the merchant class. He was the son of wealthy textile industrialists. And in fact, while running the Moscow Art Theater was also running his family factories. And uh, But he didn't want to play it. He actually says in a letter to Chekhov, uh, I, I'm trying to do the part essentially. And then he says, all I'm managing to produce so far is Konstantin Sergeyevich trying to be nice. That, that was all he was able to do. And so he actually just kind of refused to play the part. Um, and it, it's probably because he had really distanced himself from that class socially and, you know, had sort of invested in 
the life of the artist. And I think he, my, my guess is he felt some real conflicts about trying to play a, you know, merchant who's the voice of reason in the play or whatever. And so he actually wanted to play and eventually wound up playing the part of Gaev. Um, the reason why I think this is important is that it actually points to a tonal disagreement that Chekhov and Stanislavski had about the play, which is that Chekhov really viewed the play as satire almost almost a farce um that it was a pretty savage comedy about these ridiculous people who can't see the evidence in front of their face that their way of life is dying and then you have Lopakin who's the voice of reason in the play right and i think if you read the play you can see why he might have thought that but um i actually think chekhov's wrong and i think stanislavski was right that that is not actually the version of the play that works and um it's worth saying that because this disagreement is used as a cudgel in the scholarly community to beat up on Stanislavski a bit that um, Stanislavski's the guy who ran the Moscow Art Theater with Stanislavski was actually an even closer friend of Chekhov's uh, a guy named Vladimir Namirovich Danchenko agreed with Stanislavski. Most of the theater company did, you know, their idea, uh, uh, what, what they decided to do, which is sort of what Stanislavski was known for was a very sensitive, lyrical, dramatic, empathetic production of the play. And Chekhov really didn't want that. Um, to give just one more example, because it's funny, and I know I don't want to take up too much of your listeners' time, was um, um, one of the ways that Stanislavski made these plays work, Chekhov's plays work, was with atmospherics. He was incredibly devoted to this kind of extreme verisimilitude. And if you read the production scores for his plays, they're filled with all of these sound effects. So if people are outside, it'll be like, you know, you, you hear the frogs croaking and the crickets chirping and, you know, all this stuff. It was this idea that we're sort of seducing the audience into the reality of this play. Chekhov did not like this and it's not what he really did not want for the cherry orchard. So so he wrote a letter, which I will read from, where he says to Stanislavski, listen, I shall write a new play, which will open like this. How wonderful, how quiet, not a bird, a dog, a cuckoo, an owl, a nightingale or clocks or jingling bells, not even one cricket to be heard. Um, and this is a very famous letter because it's, you know, there's like, this is like the prime collaboration of both these men's lives up to that point. And Chekhov is just writing up this savage takedown of his entire directorial strategy. Um, but I think the evidence says that Stanislavski was right. And sure enough, um, I've never seen a production of the cherry orchard that treats it like a near farce or that treats it exactly like satire. Um, uh, and that doesn't treat these characters as ridiculous as they can be with at least a little bit of sympathy. And I think the conflict between those two impulses is actually what really makes the play quite rich. And that's it for our first checkoff episode. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Isaac Butler. Listeners, you should all go find his book on method acting when it comes out from Bloomsbury. And until then, enjoy the podcast Working, which he co-hosts over at Slate, and read his book about the play Angels in America called The World Only Spins Forward. Also, thank you to Adam Baer for our music and to everyone at LitHub for hosting us. We love getting messages from listeners, so please write to us either at litcenturypodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at litcenturypod. 
bye till next week